Beloved congregation of the Lord, as we begin our afternoon message, I ask you to turn the back of your Psalters to page 62. Page 62. As we continue our series looking at the biblical doctrine summarized in our Heidelberg Catechism. Page 62, Lord's Day 30. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sins by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we by the Holy Ghost are engrafted into Christ, who, according to his human nature, is now not on earth, but in heaven, at the right hand of God his Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. And further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them, so that the Mass at bottom is nothing else but a denial than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death, and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened, and their lives more holy, but hypocrites, and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves." Are they also to be admitted to this supper who, by confession and life, declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. Well, for those of us who um, have been here some time, we remember that we have been working through the doctrines of the Heidelberg Catechism for a period of years. And the great theme of this catechism, summarizing as it does what the Reformed Church believes about the central doctrines of the gospel and the law, that this is primarily about comfort. How is it that we can have that comfort of knowing that we will live and die happily, that we belong unto the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the three things summarized. We must know our sins and miseries. We must know how we may be delivered from our sins and miseries through Jesus Christ and faith in him. And also how we must show forth our gratitude 
for this deliverance. This comfort is the central point of the, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. And here in this section of the Catechism, we are concerned with the role of the sacraments. This is the language that theologians use to describe baptism and the Lord's Supper. These two sacraments of the New Testament church, you see, are not, are not that which gives us faith in the gospel, but they are rather these visible signs and seals of God's grace in order to strengthen the faith of believers, in order to increase their comfort and joy in the great salvation wrought by Christ. And so having described uh, in some detail what sacraments are generally in the scriptures, having examined the doctrine of the sacrament of baptism, we are now in that section, three Lord's Days, devoted to this great subject of the Lord's Supper. In this part of the Catechism, we saw particularly how those who are welcome to the Lord's Supper are those who have made a confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith, they own Christ as their Savior, and they find their salvation in none other name. Likewise, we saw also in connection with the observance of the Lord's Supper in our congregation that this most precious of ordinances that Christ gives to the church through this visible sign of the bread and the wine pictures to us and stirs us up unto a holy remembrance of the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. We feed upon Christ not merely with our mouths but in faith not directing it to the visible and the physical, but to our precious Savior who is at the right hand of the Father and his finished work upon Calvary's cross. This is what the Lord's Supper is. A very precious means of comforting and building up the church. And yet, we know, of course, but as in the days when the catechism was written, so also today, there is much confusion and even errors, even serious errors about this matter of the Lord's Supper. This is what Lord's Day 30 is especially directed to. And we see in, our, in question 80, there is uh, an explanation of the difference between the Christian church, what they believe concerning the Lord's Supper and what the Roman Catholic so-called church believes about their mass. Likewise, questions 81 and 82 would uh, clarify for us the right observance of the Lord's Supper, who is to be admitted to the Supper. These are some of the things that we have uh, before us in this Lord's Day. And so in seeking to lay a right foundation for some of these issues, and I also hope to touch on some other contemporary 
challenges to the doctrine and observance of the Lord's Supper that the church faces today, I wish to begin by laying some foundations, coming to a matter which maybe doesn't occur to you immediately when we read this Lord's Day, and that is the Passover. The Passover. Now, I'm not here arguing that the Passover is the Lord's Supper. I, I certainly am not saying that. However, I am arguing that in understanding this matter of the Passover, we may gather some principles which will allow us to vindicate and prove that what the Reformed Church confesses on these matters is very biblical. Of course, as the Puritan Matthew Henry uh, said so well, this is obviously a matter that would be worthy of our attention no matter what. He, he writes in his commentary, not one of all the ordinances of the Jewish church was more eminent than that of the Passover, nor is any one more frequently mentioned in the New Testament. So I would make no apology for having a sermon about this, even given its own innate importance. But the author of the, of the Heidelberg Catechism, Zacharias or Sinus, notes this in his commentary, the importance of this in discussing the Lord's Supper. He writes, It was a sacrament of the ancient church, which was to be celebrated according to the command of God in every family of the Jews by the yearly slaying and eating of a lamb, a year old, that it might be a memorial to them of the great benefit of their deliverance from Egyptian bondage, and that it might also be the seal of the promise of grace, touching the forgiveness of sins on account of the sacrifice of the Messiah. You see in his commentary, he draws out this argument that the Passover, while it is a distinct ordinance, it also is worthy of the theological title of sacrament, for it is well, it is well, was a visible sign and seal of the grace that would be found in the Messiah to come. By way of introduction, let me simply point to you two verses that are quite important. Exodus 12 and verse 13. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. That's the meaning of the name Passover and its reference in the first place. God himself passes over his people Egypt in this judgment, which we are about to consider. But then look at verse 11. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded and your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So here the word is used in reference to what is eaten, the bread and the lamb. Later on in verse 21, Moses actually says you will kill the Passover. So what is this? The lamb and the bread are themselves called the Passover. Well, 
This, as I hope you'll remember, is sacramental language. The sign is given the very name of what it signifies, of what it points to. So also, where we saw that circumcision, it is called God's covenant itself, as though it were God's covenant, though it only signified it. So also baptism, referred to in lofty ways as our union with Christ, whereas in fact it only seals and signifies the believer's union to Christ. Or likewise, the Lord's Supper itself, that sacrament in which Jesus points to the bread and the wine and says, this is my body, this is my blood. So you see, it's sacramental language. The sign is referred to as the thing signified. Or Sinus says this, as baptism has therefore succeeded or replaced circumcision, so the Lord's Supper has succeeded the Passover in the New Testament. So with this as our introduction, let us consider the sacrament of Passover. The sacrament of Passover. And with God's help, let us consider its institution, its significance, and its lessons. Its institution, its significance, and its lessons. Well, what a sobering thing that would have been if you had been in the shoes of Moses. If you, after witnessing this nation of Egypt getting hammered by plague after plague, judgment after judgment, if you had had to go before that King Pharaoh and give him that final warning to let the Lord's people go. Pharaoh, you see, had witnessed the water turned to blood, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the livestock pestilence, the boils, the hail, the locusts, even the, the land covered in darkness. And in all these things, he had hardened his heart against all these warnings. Matthew Henry writes, See how slow God is to wrath and how willing to be met in the way of his judgments, and to have his anger turned away, and particularly how precious the lives of men are in his eyes. If the death of their cattle had humbled and reformed them, the Egyptian children would not would have been spared. But if men will not improve the gradual advances of divine judgments, they must thank themselves if they find in the issue that the worst was reserved for last. All the way back in that episode with the burning bush. Children, you remember that. Moses, when he was called to his ministry, he saw that bush that was burning and burning and not consumed. And, and the Lord spoke to him through that bush. Exodus 4, verse 21, the beginning of this book of Exodus. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. 
And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. So it is that God has adopted national Israel unto the adoption of his firstborn son, set apart from all the other nations, unto a place of great privilege and blessing as the covenant people of God. And he would have his firstborn son Israel to worship him, and he warns, he warns that if Pharaoh does not heed his commandments as Of course, the Lord knows he will not. Then he will have his own firstborn killed. And so it's all laid out in chapter 11. As we read, Moses had to deliver that message. In 11 verse 4, Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, about midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of the beasts. You see, the Pharaoh's son is not too high, nor the slave's son too low. No, they will all be comprehended in this terrible judgment. Verse 6, And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as, there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against all the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue, against man or beast, that ye may know how the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. God, you see, will vindicate his grace in this way, showing the difference between the people of his love and grace set apart unto him, and on the other hand, the Egyptians set apart unto wrath. God will vindicate himself in this way, you see. And you read how it's all laid out here in chapter 12, which really is, for the most part, a parenthesis. The history of what uh, happens in 11 should also properly, if you're included all chronologically, include most of what God says in chapter 12. But for the sake of clarity, Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, has set apart the bulk of what God said on that night here in this chapter. And it's set apart, you see, for the instruction of the people. It's, if you read it, It has sort of the character of a permanent uh, guide or instruction for the people of God to observe concerning this matter of the Passover. Chapter 12 and verse 29. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on the throne unto the firstborn of the captive that it was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all the servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And he called Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up 
and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as ye have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as ye have said, and be gone and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out in the land in haste. For as he said, we be all dead men. So the history is recorded here. This terrible episode in the history of Egypt, but this wondrous display of God's grace as the Lord's people are preserved. And how was this accomplished? Well, through a very remarkable thing. You see there in uh, verse, um, verses 1 to 3, he speaks about how there is to be in every household of a, of a significant enough size, and if they're a small household, they are to collaborate with another household. And every household, you see, on this night, they are to set apart a lamb. A lamb. Children, surely you would... Um, that would be interesting to you if, if your family were to say, okay, we're going to go buy a lamb. We're going to feed it. We're going to take care of it. And for this period of 10 days, it's going to live in our home and be, as it were, there among us in the family. But then what happens is that for every household, that lamb is to be killed. It is to be killed. And it is to be this special meal. You see, served with these bitter herbs, exactly according to the Lord's appointment. It is to be killed and served as a meal. It is to be roasted in the fire. And, and all that is not to be eaten by them, all that is to be consumed in this fire. But the blood... The blood from that lamb, it's to be collected first. And it says in verse 7, They shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and the upper door post of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. And then verse 13, And the blood shall be a token to you for a token unto the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, says the Lord, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you. You can imagine what that would have been like, children. You surely all know that there's one in your house who's the oldest child, whether the oldest son or the oldest daughter. And what a fearful thing that would have been to know that, that here, because of Pharaoh's sin, all of the firstborn are going to be killed, except those who have that blood covering the doorposts. As you huddle there together with your family, as you eat from that lamb, and as you take great care to remove all of the... All of the um, the leaven or all of the yeast from your home and to eat the leavened bread, unleavened bread, I should say, as the Lord prescribes, surely it would be such a, a strong impression upon you. 
how utterly dependent you are on that blood to shield you from the awesome vengeance and wrath of God. Well, this is a night to be remembered, a night of the Lord's deliverance as he passes over his people preserves them and carries them out of the land of Egypt as as Pharaoh himself compels them to leave. And all the, the people of Egypt, they give them the jewelry and the riches to see them on their way. The Lord has preserved his people. And it's singled out, you see, as an episode in Moses' life. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 28, through faith, it says he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. It says he did this through faith. Faith. Read that very same chapter in the the verse right before that, it it makes very clear that that Moses, he wasn't just someone with a generic faith who just believed in God in general. No, it says he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of Egypt. His faith was in Jesus Christ as he was performing this Passover meal. And this is where I would like to draw our attention now. Considering this episode, not only as it is the institution of the Passover, but what it signifies. And you remember, we've been considering this throughout all the different sacraments, not only the sign, what you can see, but what it signifies. And this, as well as all the sacraments, it ultimately signifies Jesus Christ and his salvation. Yes, the Passover for true believers like Moses among the Jewish people. It set before them a picture of the Messiah who was to come. And by faith, they knew that one salvation through Jesus Christ. And how is it that we can look at this and and see this to be so? Well, The first thing we should see is that the very fact that it's a lamb, a lamb should pique our attention. Do you not remember, children, what it was that John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus approaching unto him? Well, he said, as it says in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Oh, it wasn't because he looked at Jesus and said, wow, that, that person has, you know, uh, some kind of an appearance that makes him look like a lamb. And it wasn't just that he was using some mere expression. He was looking at Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, and saying, here is someone who fulfills all that that lamb signifies. There you have it. Where... You have this sinful people, Israel, this guilty people that are partaking of the sins of Egypt, even there in their captivity. There you have a substitute dying in their place, this innocent lamb brought into their household and it dying so that they may live. Not only so, but the text 
makes specific reference to the fact that there is to be no spot or blemish in this lamb. It is to be without any physical defect. And this, you see, is significant. It is important. For it just says, it says in Exodus 12, verse 5, your lamb must be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out of your sheep and from your, or from your goats. So also, this is pictured for us as a symbol of Christ's sinless perfection. We, I believe, preached a sermon upon this not all that long ago in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18, where Peter writes, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. If it were not for the sinlessness of Christ, how could our salvation be anything but vain? Oh, if Christ had to suffer for his own sins, he could not die in the place of his people as a substitute. So likewise, if there was a blemish on that lamb, could not be used, that the destroyer would not destroy them. And the one who does not have a sinless sin bearer dying in their place, and they as well will be destroyed, both body and soul, in the eternal fires of hell. There's a most interesting thing mentioned here, and that is the fact that not a bone not a bone was to be broken. That's mentioned there in verse 46 of chapter 12, where we read, In one house shall it be eaten, thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. You might think that is a small detail, but it is striking that the Apostle John makes reference to it. He makes reference to Christ having fulfilled this in his death. Turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19 and verse 32. Here we read, and then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first, that is the first criminal who was crucified with Jesus, and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already. They break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done that the scripture might should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. So there is there's a reference to this text of the Passover meal, and yet in some glorious way, this was ordained of the Lord, even all those years previous, 
to picture what would be really true of Jesus. Well, maybe you, you wonder, well, couldn't Jesus just as well be our Savior if instead of a spear going through his side and otherwise dying on the cross, his bones had been broken? Could not God restore his bones as he rose him from the dead? Well, listen to what John Gill writes about this verse. This is what he says. Now in this, as in many other respects, the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, was a type of Christ, whose bones were none of them to be broken, to show that his life was not taken away by men, but was laid down freely by himself. And also the unbroken strength of Christ under the weight of sin, the curse of the law, and wrath of God, and conflict with Satan when he obtained eternal redemption for us. Oh, believer, does it not fill you with such joy to contemplate this? Christ willingly dying in your place, not as a weak beggar, but as a glorious and mighty Savior, triumphing over the devil, triumphing over an enemy even greater than that of Pharaoh. Enduring the wrath of God in your place and all out of his abundant love for you. Oh, take heart. Where we have sinned and earned wrath and judgment, Christ has died for the ungodly to bring us unto his Father. Oh, praise be unto Christ. We know this as well. This whole matter of the blood, the blood, that was... Most important, wasn't it? Not only that that blood be spilt from the lamb, not only that it be collected, but that it be applied, applied to the doorposts. The destroyer would see that uh, sign of the blood on the doorpost and pass over. And so it was this as well was most important to the whole matter. It, you see, as Matthew Henry says, the blood thus sprinkled was a means of the preservation of the Israelites from the destroying angel who had nothing to do where blood was. If the blood of Christ be sprinkled upon our consciences, it will be our protection from the wrath of God the curse of the law and the damnation of hell. Hebrew nine, for Hebrews 9, verses 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Oh, my dear friend, if you are not converted unto Christ, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, what are you waiting for? Here is a sufficient Savior. Here is refuge from the wrath to come. Flee unto Christ in faith today and find him to be a full protector and safety unto you. Well, here, I trust there has been a demonstration the Passover meal was not only instituted, but it signified the grace of Jesus Christ unto believers under the Jewish church and the old covenant. 
But let us conclude here with some thoughts and some lessons in particular from this this sacrament of the Passover. And my hope is that some of these lessons we will uh, be laying a foundation for subsequent sermons where we'll be able to apply it to the right administration and use of the Lord's Supper. And so the first would be this, the very high importance of instruction in these things. You notice in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 25 to 27, and it shall come to pass when ye be come to the land which the Lord will give you according as he hath promised that ye shall keep this service and it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, what mean ye by this service? And ye shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshipped. You see, the Lord thought it was so important, not only, not only that the people would do the right thing, but know why it was that they did it. They needed to be instructed, catechized, taught, and even from their youngest age, as mere children. Maybe children, you remember, after we celebrated the Lord's Supper in Sunday school, do you remember that I drew that picture of a table with bread and wine, the elements of the Lord's Supper, and I drew a picture of a minister giving the Lord's Supper to the believers who were eating the Lord's Supper. And I explained to you, didn't I? This is why we do this, to strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope all of you, whether young or old, you don't just do these things because we go through the motions. Nor are you disappointed if we have a whole sermon explaining why and how we use the Lord's Supper profitably. It is important to God that we understand why we do what we do. And so it must be important to those who fear and honor God. I would also say this, not only the importance of instruction, but the importance of obedience. Obedience. Maybe you... As you were reading uh, that chapter together, you thought, well, is it really necessary to read all this? All of these details, really, even the details that it had to be a male lamb? I mean, what do these things matter? Well, I think it matters because God would have himself worshipped only in the way that he has commanded. No other way, only what he has commanded. It's striking that in the prophecy of Malachi, God is very angry for the people because they deviate even in small ways from what he commanded to them. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 14, Cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing for I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. He says, I am a great king, but there you are. I told you a male lamb, and some of you, you're just worshiping, a, you're just worshiping the Lord in the Passover with a female lamb. And he, he calls this not just a less good way of doing it. No, he actually calls it a corrupt thing. 
You know, it's a striking thing how casual churches are today about handling the Lord's Supper and even changing the way they observe it. I remember during COVID, I read about how some uh, churches were actually saying, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper from home today. You just take some Coca-Cola and some crackers, watch the, the service. You can have the Lord's Supper just in your own living room. Terrible. Trampling upon the commandments of God. Forgetting maybe that even in 1 Corinthians 11, it says that God even caused some people to be sick and died because they were not honoring the Lord's Supper the way they should. I hope as we address this in subsequent sermons, the, the importance of administering and having Lord's Supper in the way God has said, we will not trifle with such important matters. I notice this as well, the importance of preparation. The importance of preparation. You notice in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 3, Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every male a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. Ten whole days, there was to be preparation. You don't just wait until the final moment where you actually have to have the lamb, but you prepare. Ten whole days, it says. Listen to what Matthew Poole, the Puritan, writes about that. This was partly to teach the church in all ages how necessary a thing preparation is to the solemn duties and exercises of religion. You see, some people just come to Lord's Supper never having prepared their souls to rightly receive it. Some people also come to worship services that way, without praying, without seeking to humble themselves before the Lord and to contemplate divine things. No, they, they have the business on their mind from the week past or the week to come. And the Lord would say, no, prepare, prepare. These things are important for our comfort and for the Lord's glory. Let us not trifle with our a due preparation. Just notice that matter of the bitter herbs, bitter herbs. And whatever else it may symbolize, the fact that there was bitterness in the herbs that they were to celebrate with the Lord's Supper seemed to denote the suffering of the people of God under the lash of Egypt, but also the idea that this had to be remembered and carried forward, that there was a, a bitterness concerning the right observance of these things. And if there is to be this in the Christian life, a bitterness with worship, it must be because of our sin. Matthew Henry writes about that verse. We must feed upon Christ with sorrow and brokenness of heart in remembrance of sin. This will give an admirable relish to the Paschal Lamb. Christ will be sweet to us if sin be bitter. And with that, I would just close with this, that Christ himself must be center in all of our worship. Of course, there's that most famous text where the connection between Christ and the Passover is made explicit. 1 Corinthians 5, 5 verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. 
Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Why is it that perhaps you do not get much out of your worship? Why is it that perhaps it is a bore to you? Is it this, that you are not sanctifying the Lord Christ in your heart? There is not sincerity and truth, but you live in malice and wickedness because Christ himself is not that that person you go out to with your heart and soul as you come to worship services. Oh, may it not be named among us. Let us feast upon Christ in faith, whether through word or sacrament. Let us receive the true comfort from the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Let us do so to the praise of Christ's glorious grace.